Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome again to Encounter Church. My name is Dirk, the lead pastor here at Encounter. We are so glad that you've decided to worship with us this morning, especially because this morning is the kickoff of a brand new series for us as a community called Splinters and Stones. Now, maybe you've heard the old adage, you can try to fill in the words wherever you are at home or somewhere else, that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. You got it, of course. You were lied to as a child as well. And then maybe you uh, you believed whoever it was that told you those lies, told you those words. Because now as an adult, what you know is the truth is that some of the most devastating, some of the most powerful experiences that you have had had to do not with sticks or stones, but had to do with words. They have this sticky quality to them. They, they have this staying power to them. Now, especially as, uh, as maybe your feed like mine has been blowing up with different perspectives of uh, all kinds of things with uh, racism in America and also the, the pandemic and, and everybody has something to share, chances are that you've either been unfollowed by somebody or maybe, uh, maybe you have snoozed somebody or unfollowed or unfriended somebody else too, maybe even a relative. And why? What was that over? It was over words. And so my simple like takeaway for this morning and just like the whole message maybe in a, in a nutshell or at least the first half of it is simply this. It's that words are incredibly powerful and you know that's true. It's that words have this incredible power to either build up or tear down. That words are so incredibly powerful. So choose them wisely. And on the second half of the message, if you stick with us, we're going to hear a little, some ways about using those words and choosing those ways to maximize the power that's embedded within them all. Okay, so for this morning, I want to kind of lead into this conversation with a history lesson. So we're going to go all the way back to the year 1846, and we're going to visit Dr. Ignaz Samuelweis. And we have got a picture of, uh, of Samuelweis here on the screen before us. This is the doctor. He's a medical doctor who is a Hungarian in charge of two medical clinics. They're actually, both of them are labor and delivery clinics. One of them is staffed primarily by professionally trained medical doctors. The other labor and delivery clinic right nearby was staffed by midwives, apprentice trained. And so what uh, was happening in this kind of era in medicine is that a lot of the doctors, a lot of people were starting to pay more and more attention to gathering and collecting research and evidence. They were doing autopsies and, and, and data collection in, in wide ways for the very first time. So Semmelweis was no exception. One of the things, one of the pieces of data that he picked up that was so incredibly interesting is the mortality rates of the mothers giving birth. They, they had a particular disease, and they didn't know what else to call it other than childbed fever. And the mothers would die from childbed fever in the, in the clinic, staffed by the professionally trained doctors at a rate five times higher than the clinic staffed by the apprentice-trained midwives. Now, he thought this should not be the case. Five times the mortality rate of, of healthy moms giving birth. What could, cause, what could be the, the reason, the cause for some of this, for, for this huge amount of life or death? And so he started isolating the variables, every difference that he observed. And so one of the things he went in and he noticed, he noticed that the medical doctors, uh, they, would, they would have the mom primarily on her 
on her back through the entire childbirth experience. And the midwives typically would have the mom most of the time on her side. And so he thought, maybe that has something to do with it. And so he instructed the doctors, hey, do it like the midwives. Put her, put her on her side. See if that makes a difference. And it didn't make any difference at all. The next thing that he did uh, is he, he noticed that after a mother would pass from childbed fever, after she would die, is that, is that a priest would walk through the halls and ring this bell. And he thought, I don't know, maybe it has something to do with that. You know, so, so he, got, he got the priest to just stop, don't do the bell. Maybe it has some kind of reaction or a stress reaction in the, in the hearts of the parents, of the, of the mom. Don't, don't ring the bell anymore. And of course, you know, history shows that bell ringing has very little to do with medical outcomes in childbirth. So that wasn't the cause. He tried everything. And so one day he noticed a significant difference that didn't have much to do with the mom at all. See, in the doctor's time immediately before walking into the labor and delivery room, many of the doctors were themselves performing autopsies. And in the way that labor and delivery goes, you often don't get much warning when a baby is on the way. And so they would rush from performing an autopsy and go right next door into the labor and delivery room, oftentimes without taking the time even to rinse their hands or the instruments that they preferred to use. And so Dr. Semmelweis, he, he couldn't figure it out. He had, no, he had no way to like connect the dots. Germ theory wouldn't be pioneered until Louis Pasteur uh, came along years later. That's where we got our like pasteurized milk, you know, cheese and dairy and stuff like that. He, he would come, arise, come along later, years later, and, and develop this theory of these tiny little animals that you couldn't see with the naked eye. But Semmelweis, he had no context for any of that. He didn't know why it worked. He just knew that it worked, that when the doctors were performing an autopsy, when they finished, they should rinse their hands with bleach before going into labor and delivery ward. And he knew it was a matter, in fact, of life and death. He thought it was actually had to do with some of the, the smell because of the pungent aroma, maybe it Maybe it overcame the smell of death from the autopsy in life in childbirth. He thought it had something to do with the smell, but, but he didn't know. He, didn't, he was just guessing. He didn't know why it worked. He only knew that it worked. And he also only knew, and he also knew it was a matter of life and death for those moms. And so what I want to do this morning is, the, is to use the story of Dr. Semmelweis and fill it out a little bit more later at the end here. I'm going to try to figure out, but try to use that as a metaphor for the power, the life and death power of words that we use to build up or to dare down, to speak life or deal death. What I want to do is go to a, a, a biblical passage. We're going to go to the book of Proverbs chapter 21. And we're going to hear Proverbs chapter 21 starts off uh, this way. It's just super brief. The words are below. Verse 21 says that the tongue has the power of life and death. Now those are, those are huge words. That is a big claim. So just kind of a note maybe on uh, Proverbs. Proverbs was written to us by King Solomon. He's one of the greatest kings in ancient history. He's a huge, tremendous, formidable historical figure. And what Solomon did is he was a collector. And so many of you collect things. You know, what do you collect? Put it in the comments below. I'd love to read those uh, when I'm finished here. Some people collect baseball cards. Some people collect stamps. Our worship director, Zach, collects guitars. He's got all kinds of them set up in the back of all of his Zoom calls. Maybe it's just a fake background. I don't know. But I buy it. I've seen him play. I hear him play. He was a collector. Solomon is a collector, too. 
And, and what Solomon did is he collected truth. He would go around all the world, kings, queens, really anybody. It didn't matter what they believed. It didn't matter the, the, the faith that they had or no faith at all. He was a collector of truth. And anytime he heard a true statement, he would collect it. And he would write it down. He would hold on to it. And then he bound it all in that book of Proverbs that we have today. Just these collections of sayings, wise, true sayings, no matter what, for everybody and anybody. And one of those truths that he collected is that words, is that the tongue has a power of life and death. Now, part of me, I want to go like, okay, that's probably like an exaggeration now. That's maybe just a little bit, a little bit outsized. He's, he's, he's building it up in order to make a big point, right? Maybe it's hyperbole. So I just want to like push back on that a little bit. I'm saying maybe, maybe he meant it. Maybe he literally meant life and death. I think some of the reaction that we have to that in our reluctance to believe that words are a matter of life and death is because of the sheer number of words that we use. So I uh, read this earlier on that, that words we use is about 16,000 words a day, which is enough actually to, uh, to write a 60-page book every single day, just with the, with the words that we use. And so you think with that many words, I mean, come on. The picture is maybe like uh, last week, I wasn't here, right? Uh, Ryan filled in for me, and I'm so grateful for that. But I was on vacation with my family in northern Michigan, and my kids were up at Lake Superior, you know, way up north in Michigan. And then my kids did the thing on the beach that they were visiting. You know, nobody's around. It's just awesome, the whole thing to ourselves. And so what do they do? They build a giant, they dig a giant hole in the sand, you know, they dig a hole in the sand. They got a couple things to play with. We didn't have much along. We weren't planning on it necessarily. And so, and so they're taking like a little teaspoon and they're scooping up water and they're bringing it over to the hole that they had dug and they're like pouring it out. Kids, what are you doing? And they're like, we're emptying the lake into our hole. <laughs> and it's like Lake Superior, like one of the biggest freshwater bodies in the world. You're emptying it in the hole like a teaspoon at a time. You're not making a difference. And some of us, we think about our words like that little teaspoon. And they say, surely with 16,000 a day, this word doesn't make a bit of difference. It's a throwaway word, right? Let alone life and death. Okay, this is going to be kind of ridiculous. This is kind of a, this is an embarrassing story, but it's a perfect story to tell in a context like this because I can't hear you laugh at me. So permission granted, go right ahead. But it's a uh, it's a story that took place uh, several years ago, and I was uh, a recently a 30-plus-year-old person, and uh, we had a group of uh, interns here at Encounter, and, um, you know, I'm not as quite as, uh, as, as young, as cool as I once was, maybe as relevant as I once saw. Uh, as I once was. So I'm just, I'm trying to hold on to it, you know? I'm trying to, like, stay engaged and learn the lingo and things like that. And one of the interns asked me, uh, hey, uh, what are you doing this weekend? You got any plans? And I used a phrase that I thought meant I don't have any plans, that I'm just hanging out, that I'm really not doing anything at all. And so I very embarrassingly turned to that intern and also the group of other interns said, no, nah, I think I'm just going to Netflix and chill. <laughs> now, for those of you who might not be aware, 
Is that phrase a little dated now? You can look it up, but caution if you do. Is that phrase actually meant something different than just having no plans and and just sitting around all day like I thought it did? That meant actually having a different kind of relationship. And I just, you know, in my defense, I want to just remind everybody watching this that I was actually uh, married for over 10 years at the time and, and had two kids. So whatever the definition of what those words may have been, I'm just going to trail off right there because it's probably not going to like get us anywhere productive. And my, my, my point was, I skew the average with my words. So I'm up at about like 20,000 a day at an extreme extrovert. And that group just couldn't stop laughing. And I can't live it down even to this day because, because they remember those three words. They stood out. Why? Words have power to shape, to form, to build up, to tear down. So many years later, after Proverbs was written, James, who who was actually the earthly brother of Jesus, he's the younger brother of Jesus. After the resurrection happened, James sat down and he wrote a letter, an open letter to all the Christians that would believe in the resurrection, believe in Jesus after that time. And James had a letter that he wanted to write to his people in in chapter three and verse three as well. He, He just says the power of words the power of the tongue, he said this. He says that when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. James like observes that when you put this little tool in the the mouth of this massive animal, it doesn't matter how big or small the rider is, sheer, he can steer that entire animal just with a little bit inside of its mouth. Or verse four, continuing on, says, you don't like that one? Try this one, try boats. Maybe that's your thing. Take ships as an example. Although they're so large and they're driven by these strong and often unpredictable winds, they're steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. You know, he just conjures up this image. Hundreds of people riding around the ship, unpredictable, strong winds, huge sails, blowing it around, except the pilot controls it with this little itty-bitty rudder, at least small in comparison to the massive structure of the ship. Verse five, you don't like horses or boats? How about this one? Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts, huge outsized influence. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by what? Just a small spark, a spark. I mean, the the idea is that this tiny little thing has just this outsized impact, your tongue, the words that you use, a profound impact. The words have weight. They hit. And so I want to give you a warning because some of your words hit maybe harder on the listener than you ever thought of as the speaker. I wanna call some of you out, especially if you're a manager or supervisor. If you have uh, influence with other people, the people that you have influence with, the words that you use, it doesn't matter how heavy you intend them, they hit much, much harder 
than what you know. If you're a mom and you're speaking words to your kids, they will remember, those words will stick with them well into adulthood. They'll land with a 50-pound thud. Or if you're a dad, in the 10 years of, of ministry experience that I've had, I'm sitting down with somebody over, over coffee and listening to their story and the, and the meandering turns that their story has taken, and they will be able to recall as a seven, eight, nine-year-old girl, the words that their dad spoke to them that just leveled them and shaped them and cut them down. They stick with them. Your words will land with a 200-pound thud. Words have power. In uh, preparation for this time, I reached out to a counselor friend uh, here at Encounter Church. And so somebody watching this, make sure to tag Michaela. Um, Michaela, you know this, and, and you've shared it with many of your clients. I thank you for sharing it with me. The power that words have, and she uses different practices uh, in, in, her, um, in her meetings with people. I just love this quote she sent to me. It's been floating around for a long time now. Not hers, but just, just wisdom, wherever it's found, is truth statements we're collecting, is that words, words are, a singular, are singularly the most powerful force available to humanity. We can choose to use this force constructively with words of encouragement or destructively using words of despair, words of energy and power with the ability to help, to heal, to hinder, to hurt, to harm, to humiliate, and to humble. Words have such incredible power. In fact, uh, two researchers uh, wrote a paper and decided to write a book. They published their findings under the title, Words Can Change Your Brain. And guess what? The thesis statement of the book is that Words can change your brain. And they go on to describe how a positive word like love or like peace actually shapes the frontal uh, lobe of your, of your brain. And, and it can actually increase, uh, increase the, the reaction of the genes that you already have and, and shape and form it to, to increase things like motivation and resilience. At the same time, a, a biting, a, a harsh word, a negative word, as they found, has an impact on the amygdala, which is like the fear sense of the brain, and they found that, that it stimulates the genes another way, that it increases the, the intensity and the frequency of this stress hormone that, that inhibits our ability, especially as it relates to, to like logic and reasoning and language. Words can shape our brain. Listen, this is so incredibly profound. And if you're a Jesus follower, if you read the Bible, like you know this is true. If you're a study, if you're a student of the word, you know how important this is. Because, because the Bible starts off in the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, God creates everything. And what does he do? How does he do it? He speaks into the nothing. And he says, let there be light and land and plants and people. By his word, everything is created. Nothing is created apart from it. Jesus Christ himself is called in John 1, 1, the word who was with God at the beginning, who was God at the the beginning. Well, that's Genesis 1. In Genesis 3, a serpent comes in, the great enemy of God. And he also has the word. And he says to Adam and to Eve, he says, did God really 
say not to eat from the tree? Really? Now the words, they, they were deceptive and they were lies, they were untrue. But it no less robbed the words of their power. You see, words can build up, can bless. Words can divide, can deceive, and will destroy. Words have power. Jesus, in his ministry, the word. When there was a storm that came upon him and his disciples, he stood up in the boat. And what did he do to the storm? He'd do one of these. He'd do one of these. He spoke a word, peace, and nature obeyed him. He stood at the grave of his dead friend and he spoke a word. Actually, he shouted a word. Lazarus, come on out. And the dead man came out. Listen, this is the point. Jesus spoke life to death. And now, this is so important. He's inviting you to participate with him in using our words to speak life to death. Remember Dr. Semmelweis earlier? He didn't know how it worked. He had no concept for germ theory. He couldn't figure this entire thing out. It didn't make any sense to him. It didn't make any sense to anybody. But what he observed he saw it again and again and again, washing hands. It's a lesson for all of us still today. It was a matter of life and death. Please wash your hands. Lives will be saved as a result. But nobody would listen to him. Even though they saw the evidence, people just wouldn't pay attention. They wouldn't respond and they wouldn't act in light of this life and death warning that he gave. And so Samuelweis, he actually, it drove him mad. At the age of 47, he lost his mind. He was committed to a mental, mental institution because he couldn't escape the reality that so many lives and deaths were on his hands and on the hands of his other doctors working with him that he just could not persuade. And so even now, I'm told that medical students are taught the Semmelweis reflex, which is a warning, it's a caution to say, listen, when you receive this new information, you might have a tendency to reject it out of reflex if it doesn't fit into your box and to fit into your natural schema of how you, of how you understand the world. But if there's evidence for it, you have to listen to it. It doesn't matter how it's true. You just need to know that it's true. And some of you have had that experience in the events recently. You've had this reaction, this bristling, this Semmelweis reflex. You said, it doesn't fit with my worldview. It doesn't fit with how I understand this thing. So this morning, what we're doing is we're participating with Jesus, recognizing the profound power of words that we have. And we're speaking the words of Jesus, life to death. And so I wanna give you some phrases some phrases that come directly for God. This is not, don't get me wrong, don't Semmelweis reflex this thing, okay? This is, this is not Dirk's words. This is not like a self-help, Tony Robbins guru kind of stuff. This, is, this isn't that, not at all. These are speaking 
the words of the divine. These are speaking the words of God himself every single day. And so the challenge this morning is twofold. In light of the power of words, matter of life and death, in fact, is number one, wake up every morning and speak at least one of these truths, not mine, God's. And I know that you're not gonna be able to remember all six, and that's okay, screenshot one of them. Remember one of them that jumps out at you. We're gonna have them kind of rolling through on social media this week so you can remember those. But wake up every morning and speak one of these truths. Again, not mine, from God. Truth number one, wake up tomorrow morning and every day this week and just try it and just say, today I am a child of God and evil cannot touch me. It's not Dirk's truth, it's God's truth. Said to us from John 1 verse 12. Wake up tomorrow morning and speak the truth that I am not condemned by my sin. Because God tells us in, in Romans 8 verse 1 that there is no condemnation for anyone, even you, even me, who is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He does not condemn you. Stop carrying that thing along that happened in the past. Jesus died and buried it in the grave where it will ever remain. Truth number three is that I have plenty, this was mine, I have plenty of grace to give people today because of the grace God has given me. How often do we say things? Like I'm at the end of my robe, I have nothing else left, I'm barely hanging on, I don't have anything to give. Speak that truth, I have plenty of grace to give because of what God gave me. Again, not my words, but God's from Ephesians 4. Some of you need to hear this truth. Wake up tomorrow morning and say, I will make a difference today. I will make a difference. Why? Because God tells me in Ephesians chapter two that he has prepared good works in advance for you to do. So you can wake up tomorrow morning and you say, I will make a difference today. Not self-help, that's God's help. These are God's words and these are God's promises that you're speaking over your life each and every day, every morning. Wake up tomorrow and say, I am not worried or anxious from Philippians chapter four. Wake up tomorrow and say, I will not be discouraged or even defeated from 1 Thessalonians chapter five. Wake up and speak God's word. In the morning, and when you go to bed tonight and every day this week, just trying it, to do a word audit or an inventory before you go to bed. Just stop and think for a moment about the words that you use and the power that you have to build up and to bless or to deceive, to divide or to destroy. Invite somebody in. We do life together in Encounter Church. Invite somebody else to say, hey, audit my social media account. Help me do an inventory of my words. What do you notice? Am I blessing? Am I dividing? Am I building up? Am I destroying? Help me. And we called this series Splinters and Stones because every word you use either shares a splinter of the cross and redemption or casts a stone of condemnation. Choose your words carefully this week.
Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that it's enough to cover our words. God, you know the things that have come out of our mouths. You know, even darker than that, the places in our hearts that they came from. You love us the same. Jesus, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your forgiveness. God, I I pray for the person who's listening to this right now who doesn't know where they stand with you and they're just looking for solutions and looking for answers. God, I pray that they have the courage to just try it, to just wake up and to speak and to live out your truth in their life just to see what you do with their faithfulness this week. God, with all of our words, we thank you so deeply much for loving us just exactly where we are, but loving us enough not to leave us there. Jesus, it is in your risen name that we all said together, amen.